You're all very welcome to this, the third episode in our current series of podcasts. And we're sitting again in the trademark offices in Belfast, overlooking what probably will be the largest bonfire in the Shankill. We're about 100 metres away from it, but we're not here today to talk about bonfires. We'll maybe save that debate for another day. And we're here, we have the privilege of having with us very good comrade and friend, Dave Gibney, communications officer for Mandate, uh, the Retail and Bar Workers Union that organises only in the 26 counties, uh, keeps yourself down there. Uh, we're here today to talk to Dave about kind of the general situation within the trade union movement and some, some of the biggest issues facing the trade union movement in Ireland and indeed globally. Um, I'm not entirely sure where the debate will go, but we'll just let it uh, find its own uh, find its own way. I'm also here again with Mel Corrie, um, former textile worker from Lurgan, uh, currently working in Trademark. Um, and again, yeah, the theme today issues facing workers facing the labour movement. I'll kick off with a general question, lads, and we'll see where it takes us. What are some of the most pressing issues facing workers? Dave, I'll kick off with you, if you don't mind. Yeah, uh, thanks, Stevie. The um, the big one, I suppose, is is low pay. And, um, you know, even though we only organise on the 26 counties, as you say, it's an issue that's um, more prevalent on this island than it is uh, anywhere else in the developed world. Um, and we, how do we compare, say, to the rest of um, the EU? Highest prevalence of low pay in the entire EU on this island. Um, and even within the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland would have the highest prevalence of low pay. So um, it's something that has grown in the last 30-odd years, probably, 30, 35 years. Um, and that low pay has been a result of um, insecurity of hours at work. Uh, where and it, it's really about power at work and who controls hours, who controls the power, how employers can threaten, intimidate, and frighten workers so that they won't join a union, they won't um, go on strike uh, for for decent pay increases. Um, and we've seen it in in Mandate in a whole heap of employments from Dunn Stores to Lloyd's Pharmacy to Paddy Powers to whoever it is. Um, it doesn't really matter. The, all the employers appear to be behaving in the exact same fashion. And they like to threaten their employees. I mean, one of the big statistics that we used over the last four years was in Dunn stores, 85% of workers said that allocation of hours was used as a method of control over them. So how can you win higher pay rates if you're afraid that your employer is going to slash your hours from 40 hours per week down to 10 hours per week? Yeah, I want to go back to that one in a minute because low pay, crucially, and also secure hours and the gig economy and precariousness are massive issues that we can talk about. But there's another side to that picture isn't there Mel it's not just about low pay and pulling people up it's also about the runaway inequality like the gap that's now appearing between those low paid workers and the CEOs and the management teams of those big corporations I mean um, the latest statistics is the average in I think the UK in the 1970s that the ratio of pay of a worker to the boss was 1 to 8 1 to 10 now it's 1 to 300 so it's not just about low pay is it it's also about inequality and the kind of runaway levels of inequality we're seeing and the best organ for for tackling inequality has been strong trade unions. And Davis highlighted issues that workers face in the workplace in the relationship between them and their employers, their their pay, their terms and conditions of employment. But you can't look at this without looking at trade unions and trade unions' ability to um the trade union movement's ability to uh, intervene and to improve pay and conditions. So we need to look at density of trade union membership, and the um, uh, I suppose the decline in that in that density and how we reverse it. What I kind of what kind of statistics are we looking at for the decline 
in, in Ireland, Dave? I know, I know it's been quite kind of precipitous would be a word mm. that comes to mind in terms of the last 20, 30 years. What are we looking at? So in 1979, uh, we had about 60% density levels across public and private sector in, in the Republic of Ireland. And that would have been quite high <coughs> for a European standard. That w- wouldn't have been exceptionally high because you still look at Dan- Denmark, Finland, Sweden, they still are around those rates. Maybe <laughs> they would have been higher back then, but like every country almost in Europe has declined some faster than others Ireland has been one of the fastest declining ones we're now down as low as 24% the most recent statistics yeah, which is quite frightening a drop, yeah. Yeah. from 60% all the way down and alongside that goes you know the days lost to industrial disputes days lost to strikes declined from in the same year 1979 1.4 million days lost to 2011 height of an economic crisis and we had 3,600 days lost but again there's two ends to that continuum isn't there it's not just um, the attacks that trade unions and workers have faced in terms of the kind of market flexibility and hire and fire and the introduction of zero hours contracts is also what we've done to respond to that attack. So we can't just say, well, capital's doing what it what it normally does. This is what it is. Capital's about inequality. It's about exploitation. And we should have expected that because they've been at it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So what have we done wrong in the last 30 years? Um, in order to, in the sense that we haven't really combated what's been happening. It seems as if we've been on the back foot, yes, but we kind of just keep retreating. And Dave made the point there about the absence of militancy, the absence of industrial action. Now, what, is, that, is that a fair picture of pain? Yeah, yeah I think it is. And, uh, you know, we've, the trade unions have embedded themselves in a, a servicing model of, of um, activity where um, full-time officials are the ones that are required to deliver for members. Um, which is absolutely impossible, and given the ratio between officials and members in a lot of unions, uh, that wasn't always the case. There was a, you know, we used to have um, strong workplace um, arrangements where shop stewards would direct the work of full-time officials and set the agendas, and and would workers would know the um, uh, would know their power and know how they can flex their muscles. Um, there's a sense I get that over the last 30 years, and maybe even longer than that, that workers join unions now, pay their dues, and expect that institution to deliver for them without having to get their hands dirty themselves. It was quite obvious, wasn't it, when the following the global financial crash 10 years ago, that when the attack did came, and it came quite quickly again as part of the packages of austerity measures, but attacks on unions, not from the state necessarily, but from employers, intensified, and we weren't ready to resist the assault. It was quite clear, as you said, Mel, I remember that shop stewards simply didn't have the tools, the capacity, the critique to respond. And they, didn't, they weren't coming from organised workplaces. But Dave, as I said before, and I was trying to lead you there, but I'm going to have to say it myself, there was a particular arrangement, was there not, between the trade union movement in Ireland and employers in the state, which is our analysis, at least I think, from those of us on the left of the movement, that, that kind of um, you know, emasculated us in, in, in a way. And that was, of course, social partnership. Yeah, the social partnership uh, era from, I suppose, 1987 to about 2010 um, had devastating impacts on the trade union movement. I think it's a, I mean, you could go through the reasons for, for, for why that is. Like for The big one, I suppose, would be that pay agreements were done on a national uh, level. So, uh, you know, unions were going in behind closed doors, no accountability to members, no discussion with members, and they do a two or a three or even a four percent pay increase, no matter how profitable an employer was. So, you know, a business could be making hundreds of millions of euros, the employer himself or the owner of the business, the, the, the shareholders could be taking out massive dividends. But what was happening was the media, the government, 
and the trade union movement were all saying, well, look, let's be reasonable. Let's have pay res- wage restraint. Wage restraint for ordinary workers, but no wage restraint for the, the people who are milking the economy and making hundreds of millions of euros of profits in, in, in everyday businesses. Um, all that was happening. And, and workers, you know, would look at the trade union movement and ask themselves, why would I join? I'm getting this national wage agreement anyway. Mm. So what, what needed to happen and what should be happening now is workers should be looking at the profit levels of their, their the business that they work in, the, 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 the value added or whatever you want to call it that, that they bring to it You know, they, when they're selling their labor and start to value the, the input that they have because all of these employers are nothing without their workers. People talk within the trade union movement about uh, the bread and butter when you talk about you know, the social partnership era and the servicing model, you know, uh, that, that, that servicing and protecting workers at work and doing the grievances and the disciplinaries and that being the bread and butter of trade unionism. I fundamentally disagree. It is part of the bread and butter. But the real bread and butter of trade unionism is collective negotiations, collective bargaining, and winning the best possible pay agreement that you can win. And when I look even in in the most recent years uh, at the the, the pay levels, you you mentioned inequality. Paddy Power, CEO last year, earned more than 4 million euros. And his workers, the, the workers in that business, in the South anyway, are not even getting their lunch breaks. We won 70,000 euros for the workers last in, in the last couple of months for, for, for the company not allowing its workers to have an actual lunch break for the entire day. Now, same again in Tesco. Tesco owes 178 of our members 1 million euro. Today, Tesco CEO announced that he he earned 4.8 million euros. It's an incredible amount when it's the workers after five years or ten years, ten years in in Tesco. If you're there ten years, you're on 12.95 an hour. But the main employers and particularly senior management and CEOs of large corporations act with impunity now because they know they can. They can take five million euros, pounds, dollars of of a, of a pay package because they know that no one's going to do anything about it, and that's our issue. We don't have the support we need in those parliamentary sectors, and we certainly don't have the, the power we need industrially to, to, to make any changes. And, um, and as we've already said, social partnership was, we think anyway, and I certainly think, was part of that yeah. kind of emasculation period. But I wanted to ask that question, though. In 2010 or whenever it was that social partnership ended, for those listening who don't know about social partner, particularly the Irish model of social partnership, who was it walked away from the table? <laughs> As usual, uh, it's the employers that walked away from the table. Um, In in Ireland, we have what's called a voluntarist model of industrial relations where everybody sits down and volunteers their their services in the interests of the the state, I suppose, is what what they would would say. But that includes, on one side, the employers, on the other side, the trade unions, and then you have um, the honest brokers of the government sitting in the middle. That's how it started off in 1987 then by 1990 mid 1990s 1996 ish they brought in civil society groups migrant rights center they have um, C, um ngos they were all brought into the table and they were very much the poor uh poor group at the mm-hmm. table they didn't have the leverage at that time and um, that maybe the trade unions had so they were mostly told what the agreement was at the end of the process and everybody bought into this you know it, it was incredible because I, I have studied the social partnership model and read all the articles throughout the years for a long time but everybody in in irish society seemed to believe or almost everybody that this was a great model having said that some unions like Unite, uh, the union we're all members of, and Mandate Trade Union stayed out of the process for virtually the entire 
time that it it was in existence. And I remember my first sort of strike within Mandate Trade Union was still during that model and it was in Argos and we were looking for a one euro an hour pay agreement. And what happened was, and, and this was how it was used as a stick, social partnership was used as a stick to beat unions who were actually clued into what was going on. The employer just came out and said, no, we're paying the national wage agreement. We don't need to pay anything more. You are just being greedy. People on seven euros an hour were being told that they were being greedy when you know the employer itself was, was expropriating massive profits to its owners in the UK. But, I mean, it's taken a while now to turn it around and get people to understand what social partnership was about. My big fear now is that as... Uh, we enter recovery and as profits are, are going back to the levels that they were at before they're going to get the employers who walked away from the table coming back and saying we need to sit down and have a bit of wage restraint again well, i was going to ask that question <laughs> of either of you, of you or mel is if the you know, what's your analysis of the labor movement in ireland if social partnership was back on the table you know would, would we run straight back into it at open arms with with the employer i i think that um they baited off um, and well, the the same actors would take the same positions. I think Mandate and Unite would would strongly argue against a return to social partnership, and maybe one or two other unions as well. But that speaks that speaks to something else, doesn't it? It speaks to the the culture of the labour movement in Ireland that we had social partnership for so long that that many and I'm not slagging anyone off, but many of our employed staff of our movements came in through that culture, through the culture of the servicing model, through the culture of social partnership. And so that has a heavy influence, does it not, on how you know they talk to our members? Because members listen to their officials; they listen to the people employed by the union movement. And if if, if the officials are telling everyone, no, militancy is a bad idea, striking is a bad idea, you know, coll- sectoral collective bargaining or employer-based collective bargaining is not—we don't really need that. We've got this national pay agreement. Um, their influence carries a lot, would you say? Yeah. And how do we get around that? How do we? How do we? Well, I mean, it, it was a consequence of social partnership that, you know, for example, trade union officials would have their, their wages benchmarked or their salaries against private sector employers. So, you know, somebody who's a senior negotiator within a union would be able to argue, well, I'm, I'm on the same level as a, a, a director of human resources, therefore my wages should reflect that level. And, 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 and you start to see the divergence uh, of um, pay levels within... Um, trade union organisations from the members pay and is there a big difference Dave is there a, a difficult shift if we've decided and some unions have kind of at least symbolically decided to move away from just a servicing model towards a more mobilising or indeed an organising model and if we, I mean is Mandate one of those unions yeah 15 uh, 10 15 years ago Mandate took the official position that it was going to move from that servicing model towards the organising model um, they, these things you know when you're when you're talking about the trade union movement and any individual trade union it's a slow process i think um james conley wrote a pamphlet about how slow moving the trade union movement was 100 years ago it says it moved with the flexibility and the speed of a crocodile whereas the employers moved uh you know overnight they were able to change direction of the business but going back to social partnership you know people who argue that it wasn't as bad or it, it did you know have its positives you just have to look you know the key indicators of of what social partnership delivered after 30 odd years of existence we have one of the lowest paying economies in in the eu uh, inequality levels are through the roof and never been higher uh, our health service is crumbling um 
trade unions have no access to even represent workers we can't go in and represent our staff when they our members when they're being disciplined um, and trade union density levels are lower than they've ever been since the beginning of the social partnership era and fundamentally the big one the big question that you know anybody in any trade union should be arguing for in fact they were arguing for it 115 years ago we still have no collective bargaining rights in Ireland. How can anyone say that after 30-odd years of social partnership, it wasn't bad when we have all of those criteria and still no collective bargaining? There is no positives to it. But isn't it amazing at the same time that so many in our, in our movement would rush to, to a social partnership agreement when we're faced with all of the dynamics, social dynamics you just outlined, and the idea of increasing precariousness in workplace, a servicing model that doesn't work, a drop in density young people afraid to join unions won't join unions can't join unions don't see the relevance of joining unions so we have all these kind of contradictions emerging don't we within the labour movement well, and that's, yeah. but that's why sorry Mel that moving from service into organising is, is well without it is there any future for the labour movement yeah. well I mean you had social partnership in, in the Republic of Ireland which is a very structured um, uh, style of doing things but the, the in the British jurisdiction it was uh, you know Maybe less formalised, but you had a relentless Tory attack in the aftermath of the the, the Great Miners' Strike and and years and years of of anti trade union legislation, and then you had eighteen years of a Labour government, which failed to reverse any of the the um, anti trade union legislation, uh, and that there's a, a, almost a, um, a a twenty five year period where nobody has been on the side of organised labour. Mm-hmm. And in that period, the um, uh, the ruling class are able to reshape how people think about their relationship with work. So we're right back to basics again. And the, pro- the problem that I have with with um, with um, a shift to an organising culture is I don't really think that we've taken it seriously. Um, we, you know, mandate's model uh, of organising is very different to the unite model of organising, and I think that what we need to do is is um, look less at models and just think about organising. You know, they're, you know the the old fashioned way. Um, I, I think that we can get you know st- uh, st- stuck in in sort of ways of doing things, which you know identifying strategic targets. And if there's a group of workers that want to get organised, are prepared to take on their employer. No, I'm sorry, we don't want we don't want to direct union resources to that. That doesn't fall in with our our plan. So plans need to be. Um, flexible, flexible, and 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 unions need to be talking together about it. I think that we can't we can't do this. Well, that brings, in me, but that brings me another issue and a question, which is a personal bugbear of mine. And I see, and I don't mind slagging off any large scale union, but the idea that you know we're not really interested, it seems to me, for the most part, in organising precarious workers, which is one of the largest growing sectors of the economy across Europe, are precarious workers, and so you're finding these other kind of groups bubbling up kind of, you know, ad hoc workers' organisations, ad hoc labour movements, you know, the ones who were um, organising some of the you know, Uber drivers. And I know some big unions have moved into some of those sectors, but initially it was the workers themselves, and they were kind of ignored by the mainstream labour movement. Why don't we want to organise precarious workers, Dave? Well, I'd argue that we do. And now with the sectors that we organise in, in retail, bar trade, betting shops pharmacies they are precarious sectors they're not necessarily your gig economy sectors but um for us uh, we are talking about people who are on zero all the lloyd's pharmacy workers who went on strike last year not all of them but a large proportion were all on zero hour contracts and um, they came to us 
uh, two and a half, three years ago, presented their case. No, they had their sick pay scheme taken off them. They just had no power at work. Zero hour contracts, minimum wage. Ten years in the business is still on the minimum wage. They got organised themselves. Now, obviously, we, we facilitated it and helped them, but it really was about the workers doing it themselves with the assistance of mandate. And at the end of that now, they've got pay scales, they have a, a sick pay scheme, They had a, some workers had a 34% pay increase, um, they've got uh, an increases in annual leave, and there's a whole range, a raft of, of benefits that they've won for themselves. Now, that's not to say, you know, that that, that was the union doing it. it. They did come to us, it wasn't us approaching them, they came to us, and it's been the same in Paddy Powers, they came to us. It really is about workers identifying themselves as as a group of people who can be organised or who can get themselves organised with the assistance of a trade union. Well, they have to find a trade union willing to respond, and that's the issue. You've said the mandate has been willing to respond. That's not always the case with other no, unions. Well, to, to go back to your original question, the reason why unions won't focus on precarious employment is because it's damned hard work. Mm-hmm. It means um, it's labour-intensive. It means periods of, of, of uh, getting out of the office visiting people, visiting people outside of the normal office hours. It's allaying all of their fears and apprehensions. It's about building their confidence. And then it's also about raising expectations for yeah, those unorganised workers. Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. afraid to do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. We don't want to raise expectations yeah. in case we can't meet them. But sure, what kind of hope is that for an well, organised worker? If, yeah, if we look back 10 or 15 years ago, the early 2000s, when we seen the um, the emergence of migrant worker populations coming into the north in particular, particularly in mid-Ulster around uh, the big Moy Park factories, the unions had to respond to the fact that we've now got um, dozens of workers working in factories that don't have English as a first language. Mm. And there were um, resources put into that um, in order to, to deal with that as a, as, as a bargaining unit uh, and then try and integrate that into the, the, the workforce. And generally, you know, when when I was uh, organising, there was a reluctance in other unions to recognise that as an issue, um, to the point where even even today, organising migrant workers, organising um, uh, those precarious workers, is almost a bolt-on. It's like there's somebody in the basement who looks after those people. Mm-hmm. It's not seen as mainstream trade union work. The other the other issue that comes to mind, of course, when we're talking about organising, is that. Sometimes when people move from a servicing model to an organising model, there's almost an idea, well, you, this, this is the one in which we don't need legislation anymore because we have militant organised workplaces. All we need is, a, is, a, is an organised workforce to go out and strike, and, of course, that needs to be there too. Hmm. But, Dave, would you suggest that legislation still plays an important part, considering that we seem to have relied upon piss-poor legislation for too long? But is, is it still something we should be engaging in, in terms of lobbying, advocacy, and getting legislative changes made? Absolutely. I mean... Uh one of, one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier on, one of the reasons we went for that secure hours piece of legislation, the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act, was... Did you not got a snappier title for that? <laughs> well, we did. We called it... Originally, it was the Banded Hour Contract Bill. Um, but the government couldn't allow... It was a Sinn Féin bill uh, originally. And then Labour Party came out with their own bill called the Uncertain Hours Bill. And then the government said, well, we can't have the opposition building uh, you know, pieces of legislation, so we're going to bring in the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act. Um, uh, definitely a mouthful, um, but a very useful piece of legislation. Already we have over 2,000 members who've used it in order to obtain secure our contracts, whereas 
you know, less than a year ago, six months ago, they would have been, you know, working 36 hours one week, 15 hours the next week, 26 hours the following week, and would never know the certain the, the hours and the income, therefore, you know, the income that they'd have and couldn't get mortgages, couldn't get loans from credit unions, all because, you know, you can couldn't only borrow... Rental agreements as Rental well. agreements, you can't, you can only borrow three and a half times your income, so if your guaranteed income is, you know, yeah. your guaranteed hours are zero hours, then your guaranteed income is zero hours, so you can't have any of these, you know, benefits. So now that that's in place, we can lodge pay claims. We can, you know, significant pay claims of of more than, you know, five or six or seven percent, ten percent. As I said, Lloyd's pharmacy workers won thirty four percent pay increase. So that, that enables us. That piece of legislation allows us to go out and organise workers without the fear of them feeling the retribution from their employer if they do take action. Now, that's one step, just one very small step. We've been talking in Mandate and across other unions as well about a significant sort of change-the-rules-style campaign, you know, uh, a fair work sort of act or a fair work campaign, which would have a whole raft of pieces of legislation that would allow workers to join unions in an easier fashion and to allow those workers representation by those trade unions, which is still, you know, absent from Irish legislation, both north and south, sufficiently anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. How in it? I was going to ask Mel that question that we have in the south some of the, or previously some of the worst trade union legislation in Europe, and as, as Dave said, a voluntarist approach to trade unions um, from the state and from employers. Whereas in the north, they are now in a better position than we are. There were there was an option. I think Stephen Farry may have been the minister for employment here at one point who had the option when he could have banned made legal zero hours contracts and they decided not to so it's a position now where the south is developing legislation better and more advanced and better for workers than we have here in the sixth yeah and of course whenever the uh, the tory coalition lib dem coalition um attacked organized labor as well by extending things like uh, access to industrial tribunals from one year to two year trade unions in the north were able to mitigate those they were able to uh, uh, because it was a local devolved issue we were able to saying, no, we need. Um, we have different circumstances here in the north. So we have a one-year qualifying period, whereas the rest of the UK has a two-year um, qualifying period. So what that shows us is that if, if there was a, 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 a storming executive up and running, we would have the capacity to be able to negotiate with that, that entity. Um, because but, it, it, but, I mean, let, trade union legislation is a devolved matter anyway, and you can argue that we haven't made much progress over the last 10 or 15 years, have uh, we? No, and I, I think the circumstances now exist with, uh, if, if just in the in the last week, a number of unions um, nationally in, uh, in the 26 counties have taken a, a, a position on the Industrial Relations Act in the South. There's no reason and nothing to stop the trade union movement having a national campaign for workers' rights um, uh, campaigning with the Stormont executive if it ever gets up and running and joining forces on the campaign um, to abolish the Industrial Relations Act in the South. Yeah, well, there's two things I wanted to ask you. Maybe, Dave, you can answer. One is, well, one is there was actually a, um, a charter for workers' rights as part of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, a charter for, an all-island charter for workers' rights, but it got dumped uh, very quickly, I have to say. But in terms of the um, Industrial Relations Act, Dave, 1990, what's so bad about it? Why do you want rid of it? Where do you begin? Well, give us give us a couple, uh, a couple of things. things that not yeah, uh, no secondary picketing. It's a, a, a big one. Uh, the the notice um, that you have to and the hoops that you have to jump through in order to take industrial action. Every time we've lodged industrial action over the last three or four years, we have a solicitor's letter uh, from the company's employer 
uh, or the company um, threatening us with legal action because this is not a trades dispute. You have to prove that it's a trades dispute uh, before you can you can take industrial action. But w- one of the big things is that notice period of of going of taking industrial actions, which is seven days plus you know one minute it has to be over seven days notice that you have to give. That gives employers a huge proportion of power over the workers within that week. We lodge notice. And immediately an employer will spend that next week intimidating workers, threatening them, telling them, like they did do with Tesco, that if um, if, these, if you go on strike, you're going to lose your family income supplement. If you go on strike, we won't, you won't be getting the hours that you had previously. Uh, lots of intimidation going on so that workers are, are, by the time they come around to taking industrial action, very wary of actually going out on the streets. And you would nearly think that, that act was um, written by the employers, wouldn't you? You'd nearly think that the employers were going over and looked at the raft of Thatcherite anti-trade union legislation and cobbled it all together and stuck it in one big act. <laughs> uh, and I'd just like to say, in 1990, was that part of the social partnership era? It was, chance? yeah. 1987 was the beginning of social partnership. That was the Bertie O'Hearn era. That was He was in charge of industrial relations at the time. So, uh, yeah, it was a sop to employers. Um, there was a lot of militancy. I mentioned about the... Amount the days lost to industrial disputes through the seventies, eighties, it was it was very very high. This was seen as a way of you know we'll give you uh, tax cuts in order to if you will agree to signing up to this new industrial relations act, which has put handcuffs on unions ever since. And it's almost as if the entire the last twenty years, I mean not just here but across Europe, has been about reducing the ability of workers to act on in their own interests, about yeah. making sure they tie us up with legislation, but also in such ways that it drives militancy and it drives that organising ability out of unions. I remember a year after the global financial crash in 2009, John, was it John Monks? Yeah, he was General Secretary of the ETUC, and I think his quote was, the last thing we need now is strikes and militancy and feet on the street, and that was exactly the thing we've needed forever since the birth of this economic system. Well, one of the things that really struck me last year during the whole Ryanair dispute, because obviously there's very few companies that... Uh, take industrial action on a uh, on an inter- international basis, and when uh, the Irish unions were announcing that the Ryanair pilots were going on strike, you know we've issued our notice. We have to wait a week, and then I looked at the German notice, and they said, in the interest of the, not upsetting the public, we're going to give twenty four hours notice. They had no mm. actual minimum timeline that they had to give. They could have went on strike at the drop of a hat, but they chose. 24 hours notice they thought they were being very very you know nice and doing doing so but it just indicated to me how far removed we are from certain parts of europe when it comes to trade union rights and what we've been you know pushing for particularly in mandates since 2013 has been access agreements we want to be able to go in to employments and talk to workers about their entitlements the amount of Wage theft, the amount of abuse of workers in Ireland that's going on is incredible. Within the retail sector alone, for every inspection that the WRC did um, in 2017, um, for every inspection they did, they returned €1,200 in unpaid wages to each of those staff members. That's an incredible amount of money that's been stolen from workers. So they're not just stealing our surplus value, they're actually stealing our wages as well. There you go, it's a double dunder yeah. for the employer. Mel, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, when, uh, initially when you were talking about who drew up the legislation, um, and the legislation was, was um, seems to have been framed for a certain class of people, I believe that that's not an accident. I don't believe it's limited to um, Ireland or Britain, and that we have seen um, attacks on workers right, right across Europe. Um, and one of the other consequences of, of that social partnership and Tory New Labour period is the wedge that has been driven between um, people in communities who have no ties with trade unions, 
and organised labour. Those links don't exist anymore and we've talked about this in, in previous podcasts about the need for radical political education but um, I don't believe that uh, even a big union like um, Mandate can take on an employer like Tesco's without the support of people in communities. Mm-hmm. You know, and we need or the, rest of, or the rest of the labour movement for yeah, that matter. Absolutely, mm-hmm. they are. Mandate in particular are doing an, an awful lot of the heavy lifting in terms of um, the most precarious uh, uh, workers in Ireland. So um, I want I wanted to kind of finish on this point, and that's the point you brought up before, because I think it's a point worth revisiting. Is this this idea of changing the rules? Uh, an all island campaign using I mean we're organised on an all island basis we're all members of the IC, the Irish Congress so that's the kind of campaign we should be looking at is it not then for mm-hmm. pushing for workers rights not one union acting in isolation doing all the heavy lifting as you said doing great work by the way but also the, the movement I mean we're still the, we are the largest civil society organisation mm-hmm. on this island but sometimes you wouldn't think it um, what do you, I'll leave the last word with you Dave yeah ju- just um, there's been a few statistics that, that, that go around lately one, one of which just struck me as you were saying that is um in recent weeks, there was seven. It was announced that there were seven hundred thousand people in Ireland experiencing poverty. Um, uh, Two hundred thousand children experiencing poverty. We've uh, ten thousand three hundred and five people homeless. All of these are partly a result of our industrial relations model, from people not being able to get pay rates that provide them with a decent standard of living. When all of those things are being discussed, the solutions are always about you know. Um, one of the big ones was refundable tax credits that the state should step in and subsidise low pay. Some of these employers like Tesco and Dunn Stores are some of the most profitable employers in the country and 10% of their workers are you know, receiving supplementary social welfare. The solution is partly the state intervening, but the big thing is enabling trade unions to be able to go out there and win significant pay increases that reduces the state's involvement in terms of family income supplement which last year cost the state 400 million euros for, for companies like tesco who make 250 million in profit a year dunn stores 200 million in profit a year these guys don't need you know the state to step in and pay their staff they really? just need to empower workers and just to finish up i'll wrap it up on this because i do think um, there's going to be significant announcements over the coming month, weeks and months, particularly with the ICTU, uh, exec, or ICTU BDC coming up the conference in July. Um, we've been arguing for you know a raft of different pieces of legislation that are needed. We need profit disclosures from employers so that we know what we're up against. We don't have to extrapolate figures and try and estimate how much profits are being made. We need to allow... Uh, or facilitate people to join trade unions, which means forcing employers to allow deductions at source when requested. We need the right to representation from an individual and a collective perspective. We need to make it easier to strike. And, and the biggest one is we need access to the workplace to be able to sit down and talk to workers. As a, an organiser in Australia, I had it myself. With 24 hours notice, I can turn up to any business and the employer has to give me a room to speak to workers, to tell them about their rights at work, whether you know they're, they're wa- there's wage theft going on, whether it's bogus self-employment that's happening. Whatever it is, I need to be able to go in and talk to workers about the issues that affect them and make that connection and show them that the solution to poverty, to homelessness, to deprivation is a trade union. You would nearly think, Dave, that that, that, that raft of legislative changes that we would need to come up to even the average of some other countries you would nearly think that the state didn't represent its people but in fact represented private corporate interests but maybe I'm being overly cynical am I not? Um. Yeah no I think you're you're on the money there and I mean even we think about the uh, report that was issued yesterday about uh, runaway inequality being a threat to democracy 
strong trade unions are up and independent trade unions are absolutely essential in any functioning democracy. Yeah, there's a couple of issues there that I think we'll come back to. One, one that I'm really interested in is this notion of, of radical levels of inequality in society and what it's doing to, to the limited forms of democracy we even had before that. So maybe we'll come back and talk about that another time. But that's going to be enough for today. We've talked long enough. Uh, it's 10 to 5, which means the boozers are open. So we're going to go for a pint. Thanks very much. Tune in next time, lads. Good luck. <laughs>